When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Memorial Day weekend. Happy Memorial Day, Ashley Young. Good morning to you. Thanks, Happy Memorial Day. What's the most patriotic thing you've ever done in your life? I've got a great one coming for you. Okay, so I was thinking about it since the last time you asked me. And the most patriotic thing I've ever been a part of, My one of my best friends is in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And she surprised me like a coming home. I was at work and I turn around and I see this like regal white Navy dress walking towards me at work and she surprised me and I hadn't seen her in like months and it was a beautiful moment and it was Aww. just I think that's what this weekend is about is recognizing you know the sacrifices people made I heard on the radio yesterday 54% of Americans don't know what Memorial Day actually celebrates oh my god is what, that horrifying what does it celebrate Ashley why don't you tell the 54% um it's to honor those who have made the ultimate sacrifice by serving our country people don't know that that's what I said I guess they're just in it for like the barbecue and the sales and whatever else people do this weekend. See, because I just asked you because then I thought that I was one of the 54%. Okay, when I heard that number, I was like, oh my God, my whole life has been a lie. But what else would it be? Right. People really don't know that it's for the people that have died in combat. I, you know, don't fact check me on this, but I did hear it on the radio. Okay. Well, I mean, the radio... So it's basically truth. The radio's never wrong. Okay, I got two for you. Okay, I'm ready. One is... When I was a play-by-play broadcaster for mm-hmm. St. Edwards University Division II school in Austin, Texas, loved the Hilltoppers, and we were on the road, which means that you know we were jammed in three band, uh, vans and whatever, and we were eating, I think it was at a Red Robin, and we're around the table. That's it. That's the patriotic story. Yeah, well, exactly. This, this Is there more Americana than on the road with a basketball team in Texas at a Red Robin? <laughs> And so a guy came in, and I think he was wearing an American flag, or he had an American flag, and my good buddy, Steve Gruthius, the Gru, sees this guy, and he starts singing really loudly, I'm proud to be an American, and at least I know, I mean, it was and like the we the whole table just got into it. We started cheering, and the, and the, the were you we, drunk? No, it's like stone cold sober. At a- no, no, no. We weren't drunk. We were eating cheeseburgers. It was it was a these were college kids. We were being professional. I was a broadcaster. Oh, I'm sorry, right? I didn't mean to discredit that. So it it, <laughs> but this we sounds like a 3 a.m. Yeah, no, it was story. it it, it wasn't 3 a.m. It was like 8:30 p.m. and it was and we just I just thought it was a really nice proud to be an American. Yeah moment by definition though you're not supposed to wear the american flag right. correct? it's like sacrilegious or anti for some yes uh for, for some that is considered taboo others wear it as a bikini i mean yeah. there, there's there's lo- no in between i mean i think that's the beauty of being you in show, america yeah how you want to celebrate america is up to you that's right how i feel that, that's that's where i'm at and i'll give you a real one too okay. i i got a couple of years back uh, with uh, wgn radio i got mm-hmm. to go out to San Diego and spend a week with with the Marines and we actually got to see them train and what their final training thing like when they graduate it's six weeks of training super intense uh, you know whatever they put them through it's a ton 
And the last thing they do is they do, uh, I think it's like two days they're out there. And we were there at five in the morning when they come up this hill on this mountain and it's the very end and they all get their medal that they're Marines and the sergeant coming up to each of them. And we're filming it at, you know, 6 a.m. The sun's coming up. These kids are bawling, crying. They've been through just torture. And they're, you know, they're, they're 18 years old. They're carrying packs that are 100 pounds. Some of them weigh 110 pounds, you know. And I'm sitting there watching this. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I wanted to go through the six weeks just to have the feeling of accomplishing something that these guys accomplished. Do you think you could do it? Would you be able to pass that kind of training? See, I'd like to think I could do it, but I went for a bike ride yesterday, and it was my second straight day I riding. Saw it. The Carm Commute. The Carm Commute. If you're not was... watching the Carm Commute, you're it, missing out. Yeah, check it out. But I, you know, I'm, I'm riding around on the bike yesterday, and I, I mean, it wasn't a long bike ride, and I was not in great shape. Do now, you have a bike, or do you divvy it up? No, I got a bike. Yeah, I bought. Uh, well, actually, this, this I'll tell my bike story. I got I got job by one of my friends in this bike. Well, first off, I had my bike stolen last year, which I'm was so sorry. Yeah, that was unfortunate. I but it was this like ten speed bike that I traded out in Kansas City. So I gave somebody Royals tickets. They gave me a bike. It was a sweet deal. Was it a Craigslist exchange? It or was. It a was I don't know how I got that done, but I got mm. it done. It might have been Craigslist. Okay. And I think I walked into like the bike store and was like, "Hey, man, what's your cheapest bike? I've got access to Royals tickets. Will you hook me up with that ten speed? I just need something to get around town." And so that was how I got the bike. And then I had it for a long time, but then it was stolen out of River North, locked up. I left it at like the same spot for like a week. I came came back one morning it was gone so but then my buddy says to me hey man or he, he posts on like a facebook chat hey does anybody want my sweet bike it's i want to give it to one of my friends because it's my baby i'm moving to china or whatever and so he's like he wants 300 bucks for it and so i'm like dude and then he and then he's coming back into town from being overseas i'm like how about this you could stay at my place and i'll give you my car for a week and you'll give me that bike and so we made the trade. Your negotiations are wild. I, well, because I just, you know, the guy, he wants to stay at my place. He wants my car. With you? No, I, well, at that point, I was staying with my fiance. So, oh, okay, so I stayed with the okay. fiance, gave him the place, okay. gave him the car, okay, give I'm me that speak. bike. I might have given him a couple dollars for it. I'm not sure. But so he gives me this bike, mm-hmm. which he says is in great shape, the whole thing. Well, and then he would, then he would present the bike to me. Well, his presenting of the bike to me was in my tr- was was in the trunk of my car when he gave me the car back. Thing wasn't assembled. I'm a mechanical moron, so I got to go to the freaking bike store, which it took me like three months to finally do and get it out of my, out of the back ass of my trunk. I I take it to the bike store right by fan sided, and they're like, "This bike needs a ton of work," and it was like three hundred bucks to fix the bike. No. So then I would Facebook chat. And I'm like, dude, your bike blows and um, I'm paying 300 bucks to get this thing up and running. And then he's like, oh, man, I'll PayPal you. Well, that was last year. He hasn't PayPal me anything. <laughs> and, and But so now my butt, this is the bike that You're I'm riding. You're still friends, around. though? You keep saying my buddy. I don't he's know, I my, he, he, in the he's relationship. my, he, he's my friend for. Screwed you over. A little bit, right? Not a lot of bit. Three hundred bucks. Three hundred bucks. Like the, I don't know how much bikes cost, but I feel like you could get like a cheap right. Bike I could for three hundred. I could. I could have had a beautifully delivered used bike that oh, was like Amazon sw- a bike. Right. And well, be here like in two days. You know, you got screwed over. I got screwed over by my friend, and so I was thinking, like, as I was riding it yesterday, you let that man sleep in your bed, right? And he screwed you over, right? And drive my car, and I think he put a couple dents in the thing. Like, no. I think there's like a nick on the back of the car. I, yep. I don't yep. know. I've seen the way you drive. 
No, 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 no. That's that's that is BS. I do not. I had no nicks on that car mm-hmm. because uh, it's got it's got the rear thing. You can see. You should you you should pay attention to my parallel parking. I'm great. It's, it is your no. You drive with a purpose, and I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I I, I drive Places aggressive, but but I'm not dinging my car. Well, accidents happen. Actually, I have dinged it a couple Uh-oh. times since then, but not. Not on the not on the back bumper. Okay, uh, on that note, um, should we move on along? We have a great show today. We uh, do. Wayne Mesmer, who's uh, I grew up listening to Wayne sing the anthem at Chicago Stadium, which was the greatest arena ever until they tore it down because they wanted suites and whatever else. They should have done what Madison Square Garden did and rehab it, but they didn't, and that sucks forever. But Wayne was shot. Uh, He was at a Blackhawks game, does the anthem. Afterwards, he goes to a bar. He's going to tell the story, and he gets shot in the neck. This guy's a singer. At the time, they thought that he would never sing again, let alone live. He lived. He sings. He goes. So he's going to tell his journey here. It's really, it's it's a great story. So Wayne's on the show, and then Dale Earnhardt Jr. uh, The the Jr. conversation. What a good dude, Jr. Right? He was a really good interview. Yeah. The way he opened up about some of his like the anxiety that goes into racing, just the other side of the sport, I thought was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, his, the stuff with his dad, like his dad did not pay attention to him at all. Uh, and, and he basically became a racer because he wanted to hang out with his father. And then he gets there, and then his father uh, dies on the track. And now he's, you know, st- obviously still going on and whatnot. But uh, just kind of a beautiful story and then tragic that he didn't get to spend more time with his father doing the thing that they both loved. Um, and then well, we're going to have Griffin House on the show today, singer, songwriter, one of my favorites that I get to see when he comes in town. Sometimes I go around the country to see him. Uh, Griffin House is an awesome dude. You should check out his music. And then uh, Chet Kopic passed away a little while ago, who was the first guy that I ever listened to on sports radio. It was Kopic on sports growing up. I used to call the Doug Collins show on Monday nights when he was coaching the Bulls, Ashley. And Doug, or Chet would say at the time that magic... Johnson was better than Michael and this is like you know four years in for Michael and I remember calling up as a young carm wanting to scream at Chet like how can you say on this radio station in Chicago that Magic Johnson is better than Michael Jordan what do you think Doug will you shout down and he's like well and then but like Doug didn't give me what I wanted and it didn't work out particularly well but I would call the show all right so let's move on and and bring in our conversation with a Chicago legend singing the national anthem all over town for year a year year and and many many years here's Wayne Messmer America's voice of victory speaker singer storyteller the Wayne Mesmer radio show and we got a lot going on here Wayne Mesmer I'll wait I'm patient I can uh, I can wait for the full uh, litany of the stuff that I've been involved in Co- I still am I mean co-founder Wayne Mesmer and Associates and yeah. uh you know, we're, we're it's uh, 25 years to a incredible, terrible, all of it, life changing moment for you. But mm-hmm. let's get to that in a, in a second here. I just uh, want to celebrate you being at Wrigley Field this week, singing the national anthem. Season's underway. I know it means a lot to you. Yep. Well, it was fun opening day. I mean, that was my 35th consecutive opening day. Wow. Which is kind of funny, you know, for a kid who grew up on the South Side. I spent three years with the White Sox, great years, 82, 83, and 84. Uh, 83 was magnificent, but nothing compares to 2016. Right. You know, and uh, just standing out there realizing what's what an altar that is, what a shrine Wrigley Field is. And to be a part of the history, I 
So I, I pinch myself a lot. You should. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 an incredible. First of all, you obviously you've earned being there, but just you know to enjoy the fact that I get to be the guy who stands out here and sings is just awesome. But you mentioned growing up. I was curious about that. You grew up on the Southwest Side. Mm-hmm. Were you a Cub fan or Sox fan growing up? Well, at the time, really Sox fan at the time. But yeah. but what really and I still love the Sox. You know, yeah. I, I love the Cubs too. But my team was the Milwaukee Braves. Wow. Well, Henry Before, Aaron. Oh yeah, Eddie Matthews. You know, it goes on and on. Yeah. Joe Adcock, Del Crandall, Warren Spahn, Luperdet, you know. I, I got a lot. Of, I got mad respect for Milwaukee and Brewers fans, and I get and now old school Braves fans. Yeah. But so you're the Southwest Side kid, and you're into singing and playing the accordion mm-hmm. and just doing music. Like for a kid, did you did you feel different at the time? Because I'm wondering if you were. Yeah, I guess I've always been a little bit different, and, I, and I'm not sure why. But it was. Uh, I like following, just following a whim, following my. Uh, even like the budding of a passion. Kid next door was a all city baseball player. Played accordion proficiently. Okay. And you know, summertime in the city, windows are open, and I'm hearing him play and thinking, well, this guy's cool. Nobody's making fun of him. So I'll, uh, you know, begging for accordion lessons, and finally started uh, at age eight, and I still play. You know, and, and people laugh about the accordion. Oh, there's, there's the phrase that says, a gentleman is someone who knows how to play the accordion but chooses not to. You know, <laughs> to which you laugh only for a little while until you, you start playing this thing. And next thing you know, it's a party. It's fun. Right. You want to walk down the street with the thing. Yeah. So music was my thing. Kelly yeah. High School, public high school, and uh, play the French horn. That took me through uh, high school and college. And uh, music was just, uh, I'm, I think I'm a musician first and everything else second. Did you have the goal, I want to sing the national anthem at whatever, Comiskey Park, Wrigley Field, Soldier Field, you've done it all, Chicago Stadium, the greatest ever? Never. Yeah. Never thought about it. Um, although my brother, but who's uh, three years older than I am, we played Homer and Derby in the backyard. Okay. There would always be a national anthem before the game. Just because we were goofing around, we would always announce every batter. So one day I was sitting at Wrigley, and this is like, you know, 20-some years deep into being the PA announcer of the Sox and Cubs combined. And I'm sitting there thinking, I was doing this when I was eight years old, you know. And sometimes you feel like I was born to be in this chair at this time. That's awesome. I love. <laughs> I, I just love thinking about, you know, I mean, for me, eight years, eight, nine, ten years old, that was that was like Michael Jordan era. That was that was Bill Buckner. Oh yeah. That, that was Ryan Sandberg, and you know, just I mean, and something you could never personally attain that that stardom yourself, but kind of in your dreams you can. But also to be able to get to know these guys and have them know you and call you by your first name, I am still unbelievably humbled by that. So I was going to get to that, but since you brought it up, let, let's uh, you know. When you, it was 25 years ago, after a Blackhawks game, Mm -hmm. you're in your car. Walking back to my parked car. Walking back to your parked car, right. Saw a young fella coming down uh, Taylor Street, and uh, most everybody's been to Hawkeyes or Rosebud, and uh, I had been in Hawkeyes and walked a block and a half back to my parked car, a trip that I had taken on foot a few times before. And a kid walking down the street, didn't like the looks of it, got into my car, Watched him, kept my eye on him, and didn't realize there was another 15-year-old who ran up on me. And as I pulled out of the parking space, he banged on the window twice right next to my ear. 
And then as I as I hit the gas, because from the sound, he pulls the trigger. It's a nine millimeter, point blank, shot through the glass into the ne- into my neck, and uh, the bullet actually lodged in the muscle on the right side of my neck. It's not that I was superhuman by any means. Apparently, it's just a lot of divine intervention happened. I was wearing a, a Save the Children Foundation tie at the time, um, and that went into the bullet hole of the wound and stopped a lot of the bleeding. I was able to drive the block and a half back to where I had walked from, get out of the car, walk back up and knock on the door at Hawkeyes, wait for the police and the ambulance to arrive, and left it in the hands of the uh, paramedics and the surgeons after that. So you remember it. Oh, vividly. Yeah. Vividly. Yeah, it, it's interesting because the, the adrenaline rush that people talk about, yeah, it's real. I'm sure. Yeah, it's real. And no previous experience needed to let you know that you've just been shot either. You know? <laughs> right, that's something that nobody yeah. ever... I, I mean, I've never even thought about it. I mean, I, I, mean, I guess I... You know, when I'm looking around, don't like, even fantasize about right. it. Right. You know, it's not worth it. So you you drive back, and you're, I'm assuming you're in shock at this point. I would have to have been in shock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Walked in, sat down, and uh, the term buzzkill. Because imagine walking back into the bar where six one victory Hawks beat the Blues. It's a Friday night in spring. <laughs> I, I, whoa, what is this, man? You know, Anthem dude is uh, walking in. Looked like a scene out of the old west. You know, and uh, sat down, waited for the police, the ambulance to arrive. It, you know when you drop uh, a drop of uh, oil in water, how it just poof, dissipates? Yeah. That's kind of how the crowd uh, just, whoa, you know, parted. And one a dear friend who, whom I just saw in Arizona, who's uh, now a mom of three and married to a Navy fighter pilot, uh, at the time was a, a nursing student. She stepped forward and uh, just put the pressure on the spot. And, yeah, I mean, I'm eternally grateful for that, uh, for that moment. Did you, did you think I'm going to die? I didn't know. I thought dying was not an option. I, I thought that right away. Yeah. But, you know, what, what now what? Because the golden goose not only had, you know, they didn't just break the egg. They kicked the goose pretty hard. And I'm thinking this may be it for what I do for a living may have just ended abruptly. But who I am was not going to change. Yeah, I so let me get to that in a second, but I want to tie it back into old Chicago Stadium, which I will forever say was the greatest arena, outdoor, indoor. I just love it to the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the last year of the stadium, right? Right, that was it. And uh, five days later would have been the last anthem. Yeah. You can't sing. You've just been shot. Mm-hmm. You're alive, thank God. Uh, your wife, Kathleen, yep. is is up by the organ. Standing in the spot where I would have sung. I look at that picture, I, I can't even, it's I, un- I can't look at it. It's, it, it. it just tears me up. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. And they play a recording of you singing O Canada because they're playing yeah, the Maple Leafs. Correct. Yeah. And, they, and, and they play your anthem. Yeah. And that she's... Was, that was a moment. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, yeah, it, it yeah. just, I mean, you obviously didn't want that to happen, but just to well, look. And the reason why I bring it up is because you had Blackhawks players saying it's not going to be the same without Wayne. Mm-hmm. You have all these fans are holding up signs, yeah. you know, get, I mean, it's, it's I all on display for you. Well, it was the most humbling experience ever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as th- that moment you just mentioned with Kathleen is uh, been rivaled a few times. She did not come with me to opening day yesterday, not because she didn't want to. She is a huge baseball and Cub fan. 
and has such a crush on Joe Madden, and I think it's mutual. But uh, <laughs> she started yesterday as a, a volunteer in hospice program. You know, it's like that takes a special it does. heart, a special person to do that. Right? You know, so I, I realized that I, that I, long ago I realized that I had won the lottery with her. That's, I mean, that was, that's, and you've sung, um, for people who don't know, you, you've done a million anthems together with her. Yeah, yeah, we'll do probably seven, I think, this year, scheduled at Wrigley, uh, together. Okay. On Sundays we do God Bless America and the anthem, national anthem. So, okay, now let's go, Rick, where you were leading before, as far as, here you are, this is your life, mm-hmm. your identity, and now it's being taken away from you. You don't know if you're going to get it back. Uh, and you, you've got to reassess, well, what am I, what am I going to do, I guess, if I'm, if I'm not the singer, right? Yeah. And that didn't come right away, you know, yeah. because you're, you're not, you're first making the decision, how am I going to live through this? Uh, I was off to Cook County Hospital. The two guys who uh, came as paramedics, uh, I've maintained uh, communication with. And 20 years after, we brought them out to the Allstate Arena for a Chicago Wolves hockey game, oh, well. uh, of which I'm a founding partner, and walked out on the on the red carpet flanked by these two guys, Bill and Henry. And it was the first time the three of us had been together since that night. And with them in full salute, and I'm singing the national anthem, it was a moment. It was a great moment. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I didn't wake up for two and a half days. Uh, after the shooting and didn't really know. I was hoping it was just a bad, bad dream. Yeah. But it was a it was a real nightmare. And I wake up and I, I'm so foggy and confused and morphined up and can't move, can't move my fingers, can't move my toes, can't call anyone over, can't make a sound. I've got the tracheotomy tube, you know, size of a sewer pipe. I'm on a respirator and, you know, and I'm thinking <laughs> this... This is not what I had in mind here for a Friday night after a hockey game. You know, because it's Tuesday afternoon by this point. And uh, so a lot's going through your mind. Like, number one, wait, if this really happened and I can't move my fingers and toes and I got hit in the neck, there's a lot of mechanics inside there uh, that could go wrong and usually does when you're hit close range at a time. Okay. Um Maybe just start that right in the middle. We just, I don't know what, it, I think it's not for like three seconds, but so you were, you're, you're laying there. Yeah, I laid there unable to communicate for, a, well, two and a half days. Oh my God. And uh, I can vividly take myself back to that point. I usually don't, but uh, I'm thinking, oh my God, something happened in surgery. It was a 10 hour overnight surgery, uh, or it hit something along the way. And that bullet, and uh, I, I thought, whoa, 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 wait, steal my voice now and also be left as a quad because I couldn't move any toes and fingers? You, I got, you almost go insane. You almost combust, you know, because you're, uh, uh, you're trapped. You, you've, you're in a, a collapsed mine, that kind of thing. It's like, you know, and it, it, was, it was rough. That's my biggest fear, right? I mean, you, you think about while well, being on a plane and going down or whatever you want. I, I feel like, you know, I used to go on cruises as a kid. Like, what well, if I fell off and I'd be in the middle of the ocean? I'd right. Be, you know, but being a quadriplegic, yeah, that'd I, be number one. That's like number one terror. You can't move. I can't play sports. I know. I, I know. But then you're, I'm immediately thinking, I mean, so how do you possibly come up with something positive out of this? 
And, you know, I start hearing, finally, I'm able to, my fingers start working, my toes, and, I, and I'm able to make a, a little bit of a grunt, but it was weeks before that. So I'm writing down on a board, you know, and I write to Kathleen, I call her over, I said, did this make the news, is what I wrote in there. <laughs> she gives she gives me that Ralph Cramden look, you know, and yeah, it was in the news. And that is another thing that gave me such a, a, a tremendous feeling of uh, humility, I mean, to have such an outpouring that uh, I, I just can't, I will never let that go. And you wrote about it, and people can uh, check out all your stuff, waynemesmer.com, mm-hmm. and you got the book, The Voice of Victory, One Man's Journey to Freedom Through Healing and Forgiveness. And you have one quote that I pulled out here. In preparing for change, it takes a readiness to accept the expected as well as the unexpected. I'm trying to relate this to myself, and, you know, okay, I work in radio, I and you're familiar with this. You're always worried, though, who's going to get fired and what's going to happen next right. and how am I going to survive and when am I going to end up you know, working the career? Am I going to have mm-hmm. to go become a sales guy? So, like, you, you de- and, and everybody else has the same thing in their job. What happens if I get fired? Mm-hmm. What, what happens if my wife passes away? What happens? All sorts of terrible things can happen in life and do happen. And then you have to move forward. Yeah, and you're consumed by that. When nobody was looking, I have a, a I got a PhD in psychology, so I study a lot about the human mind, including trying to figure out my own. And uh, part of what cripples us is the fear of the future, and also dwelling on the past. And it affects the present so much that it that it truly does affect the future. There's a phrase that I love. It says, sometimes you will never know the true value of a moment until it becomes a memory. In other words, you missed it. You know, just you and I talking can have significance for both of us. Uh, if, you, if you allow it to, you know, live your, eye, live your life with your eyes open and be more concerned not about, your, about where you are. You know, so it, it doesn't matter where I am. It matters the fact that I am. You get what I mean? I do. It's yeah. it's. I, I think you're talking about being present. Absolutely, yeah. And a lot of us, we are so wrapped up every day in the doing. I got to be here. I got to. I got to finish this. I got to go over there. Versus to actually being, being, mm-hmm. you just at, in this moment with your kids, with your, with, with a friend, right. even with just with yourself. What am I? You know, what's going on with me right now that I'm. Want to eat ten Oreos or whatever those? You know, it's right. uh, you know, and there's a, there's a million the different... big the new ones, the big thick ones. Those oh are my the, gosh. right. Those are those are delicious. Yeah. And uh, now I feel yeah. like kudos they're... to whoever. Uh, yeah, they're put they're, those. In. They're never they're never taking food off the table here, <laughs> uh, so to speak. So, you and you 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 do speaking around this. What what when what do people sort of latch onto? What do you see? I think they they tap into hope more than anything else. Um, I talk a lot about when I kind of do a theory of you're wearing a championship cap. You see guys after winning the championship pouring champagne on their heads. And, you know, I always laugh because game seven, you have championship caps for both teams. And what happens to the team that loses in the 10th inning in uh, 2016? So down somewhere in a third world country, there are some (laughs) Cleveland Indians World Series 2016 championship caps. But I think I thought championship caps, C-A-P, C, commitment above all, A, attitude, and P, perseverance. I think those are the three things that I've learned in all of the industries that I've been involved in, and that's what winners and champions have. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's funny you say that because uh, now I'm, I'm thinking back to 2003 and 
Game Seven, Cubs, Marlins. Mm-hmm. The game. The well, in Game Six, the game with with Bartman and yeah, right. and and now, but the, the the series, whatever. And then I'm mm-hmm. I'm I'm on the concourse after the game, and I'm with like. Mr. Diehard Cub fan that I know is guy Ken Tarnoff, who goes to I don't know forty games a year and has just the Cubs matter to more than anything else, and there rolls by in on ten boxes the World Series shirts, (laughs) rolling by on the concourse, and he just has a complete meltdown. You know when I go home and I fight with my wife, and now right, you know I mean like the whole world had had just it 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 takes the axis. Out of whack, you know. The whole world is just wrong, and that's why in the tenth inning on, uh, you know, of, of Game Seven in 2016, when that home run happened, when Rajay Davis hit the home run in the eighth inning, you're going, "Here it comes!" Oh, so bad. I, I you know, we watched this video, and you still almost get sick to your stomach, and you know what happens. That's incredible that you say that because I watched, I, I literally watched the eighth inning. You fast forward. No, but I, I hadn't, I just hadn't watched it. I was privileged <laughs> enough to go and cover it and be there when it happened and I, all that stuff. But so I hadn't really watched it. And on YouTube, if you, there's like a 10 minute viewing of the eighth inning. I watched the, I watched it two weeks ago mm-hmm. and I felt the anxiety of the whole, th- like, it was, yeah. it was weird that I was still feeling. It's, here we go again. And then you see LeBron <laughs> up in the, box. oh, right. It's like, you're, you're, I, 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 I want, oh. Yeah, you can see I'm already working up a sweat just from that. So, uh, one thing we haven't mentioned about that year, and it, it ties into uh, 25 years ago as well. You got to sing Game Five of uh, the World Series, mm-hmm. which uh, that was an elimination game. Cubs win it three two, and Aroldis Chapman pitched two and two, two and one third innings. Joe Mann got killed in that series. That was one good thing he really did, bringing him in in the seventh. And want to mention that. Um, but so, but who remembers details of such things? I don't know why that sticks yeah, out yeah, of my mind. I, uh, but so you wore you wore the same shoes that you wore twenty five yeah. years ago that night to sing yeah. the anthem. You do the, and you and you do this. You wore them yesterday too. I wore them yesterday. It sounds kind of corny, but you know what? There is that that phrase. You know, want to find out who someone is, walk a mile in their shoes. How about put on the same shoes where tragedy happened? Um, it's kind of a full circle type of thing, and it's more for me than anybody else. And they're an old pair of floor shines that's been beaten up a little bit, but I can buff them up and uh, make them make them work. But it's, there's something very special about standing on that field uh, in in those shoes and being eternally grateful. When did it sort of crystallize? Or I'm keeping these. And I'm going to wear them when I walk out there. Uh, I hadn't had that in mind. Okay. Keeping them, I'm not sure. I, I, I keep a lot of things that I probably shouldn't, you know. Wayne Messer was a hoarder? No, not at all. No, no. Not with my wife. She'd clear out my uh, closet. But, uh, you know, like my high school sweater, stuff like, you know, some things that are, are meaningful. I have some little kids' toys that I had when I was a little tyke. But, uh, but the shoes I saved... And I don't really think they were as much uh, for future nostalgia or, as I tell Kathleen, but they may need these for the museum one day. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And it was a, it was a personal thing. It wasn't the, hey, look at me with the shoes. That, that, yeah. was, that was never it. Yeah, nobody's going to know. that. You, right. I mean, yeah. it, it, you also – you kept the tie, too, that stopped some, the bullet from going – yeah. that didn't stop it, but – Maybe it had some level of effect. On oh, there's no doubt. It, interesting. It helped, yeah. So, and we chopped it off. It looks like something that belongs in the 
again in the Kennedy Museum or something. It's but we framed it, and uh, on April tenth of uh, ninety five, a year and a day later, we uh, my my wife gave it to me as uh, and framed, and it was well, you know celebration of life. I, w- I want to circle back uh, back to Chicago standing if we can. The first time that. Blackhawks fans started screaming over you. I mean, I was reading today that it, it happened against the Edmonton Oilers. They were down. Correct. So, so I don't remember any time when, when it wasn't when, doing when, it. when it wasn't doing yeah. that. That was '85. They had played up in uh, Edmonton, and Gretzky and company had beaten them badly That's for two games. Incredible team. <laughs> Phenomenal. <laughs> and you know they came back, and everybody goes, "Well, they're just gonna lay down and get it over with." And uh, for some reason, there was this weird grumbling during during the uh, Canadian anthem, like <laughs> like there were a bunch of lumberjacks on a convention or something, and uh, and then the U.S. anthem started. They had made some racket before uh, when we played uh, Vancouver in a really tough series um, a year earlier, or even might have been '83. But uh, never, never like this. They never started right away. They'd usually wait for the last 8, 10, 12 bars, but uh, they went nuts. Hawks won. Next game, <laughs> Hawks win, and it became a tradition. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's, that's <laughs> so cool to be just a – you were there when it, when it started. That's awesome. Yeah, up in the organ loft. It was different then, too, with the old pipe organ, the world's largest pipe organ, the Barton Theater Organ. That's that's so awesome. <laughs> Do you uh, any any bitterness towards the Blackhawks? Why not make it work? Oh, I know no, you, no. no I, there's zero bitterness. I, okay. I cheer for them. I'm sad they didn't uh, have a better okay. year, and that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, plus, I had an opportunity um, to be hired with the Chicago Wolves for my intellectual abilities, not just the ability to sing, because I I drew up the marketing, the business plan, the media plan, the marketing plan, the game presentation plan. For the Wolves. And uh, so when we launched in uh, October of 94, which is the first time I came back after the shooting six months and five days later, uh, nothing short of miraculously, uh, that was a, an amazing night for me. Yeah, and can you imagine, that's 94, we're sitting here in 2019, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. The Wolves have been an incredible success. Yeah, 25 years. We've I'm, got uh, 20, 20 years of playoffs, uh, four championships, three straight division championships, and heading into the playoffs pretty soon. I don't, I don't remember the narrative at the time, but I'm assuming it wasn't like, there's no way. There had to be some people that thought that it wouldn't work. Well, there's a lot of doubters, you know, and uh, it's funny because even in radio, you know how it is. It's, you know, we've decided to go in another direction. We've all sat through those yeah. meetings. But also when you're just auditioning, and back in the day when it was tape and resume. Yeah. And, uh, well, no, I'm sorry, there's nothing. Well, why don't you go to a small town and work your way back? And, you know, and I would say to myself, I'm I'm sorry, Mr. Program Director, that you won't be there to share in my success. I mean, it sounds egotistical, but you can get very defeated very quickly. If you don't take take an attitude of, it's not me, it's just... The situation right now, the numbers don't work or something. You have to have that ego in this yeah. business. You yeah, just, exactly. I mean, you just you just do. Uh, all right, I want to go to you went to uh, the prison to see the gentleman who had shot you. Is that correct? One, there were two two two, two involved. I right. went not the cue to pull the trigger, but the other one who oh. really got slammed. He got uh, okay. 
he got um, eight, 12, um, eight, 10, 12, and 21 years concurrently for different things. 21 years for attempted first-degree murder, uh, thanks to the 15-year-old who went on the stand who said the words, I pulled the trigger with the intent of killing him. I'm the him. In that sentence. Why would you say that? Uh, yeah, I, well. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you know, a yeah. for honesty? I don't, I don't get that. Right. Uh, well, it, it's those are pretty chilling words to hear. Yeah. And, you know, I uh, the legal system and the justice system operate in different universes. And uh, But one thing that got me so much is because what was stolen was my was the gift that I was given. Um, and I was furious. You know, I mean, I, I yeah, I played some contact sport. I wanted to take a couple swings, yeah. you know. And uh, how do you get that out of you? And that's the big thing, really, that I talk about a lot in the book, uh, "The Voice of Victory," because you have to realize that if you can't, if you can't stand housing the anger and the hate and the resentment and wanting revenge, it's going to eat you alive, and you'll be re-victimized every day. So I hopped in a car one day and drove three and a half hours down to Hill Correctional Center in Galesburg and uh, walked in and thought, well, I'm going to find out what, what happened that night, you know. And so I, I went in, signed in as an acquaintance, and uh, no, you know, no, no question of any kind. And it wasn't like sitting down like you see on TV in front of like a currency exchange, you know, the big thick glass with a yeah. with a couple of phones. No, this was in a small cafeteria. And I waited for 45 minutes. And finally, this uh, young man who was 16 when this had happened was now, you know, 22 years old. It takes a while to get yourself to the point of being able to do that. And he walked in. I put on my hand, called him by name, and said, I'm here to see how you're doing. I didn't know really what else to say. I didn't know if he'd recognize me or who knew who I was. And his eyes just lit up, and he's like, I can't, over and over, he said, I can't believe that you have come to see me. I can't believe it. So we sat down and talked about that night, um, about the details, about what it did to him, what it did to me, what it did to my darling wife and mom, who was just my, oh, my love. And uh, to get that phone call, you know, in the middle of the night, and what it did to my life and the comeback and everything else. And uh, we, we spoke and spoke and spoke, and uh, I, I never broke eye contact, and I never let loose of his hand as we sat there at a table for two and a half hours and talked, and talked about forgiveness, talked about life after prison. Because I thought if there's anybody in the world who had a right to hate this guy, it would be me. I am not going to house that feeling. I, 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 just, I can't do it. I can't do it. So forgiveness, I think, is the only antidote for revenge. That is, that's awesome. Congratulations. I mean, it, it takes a ton of courage to do what you did. And then to sit there, just to listen to the story for that long. I mean, you, you, it wasn't like you were like, okay, that's him. And you said your piece and you ran out of there. No, it was pretty powerful. I mean, it was very powerful. Yeah. And, you know, the, the thing is, I, I built my life and had always built it on faith, family, and friends in that order. Forgiveness then comes in a close fourth, and that opens the door really to freedom. And it's, I, I don't have bad days. You know, I, it's tough to ruin my day. I'm so appreciative. If you're willing to share, like, what did he say about the night? It was a little bit different in terms of the details. Uh, they had held up a guy an hour and a half 
before me actually got 40 bucks out of the deal. Um, they didn't get any money off of me, and I would have helped my case had I died or given up money, uh, neither of which happened. I'm especially happy about the former of the two, but uh, it was... Uh, it was, for all of us, wrong place at the wrong time. You know, the dominoes just fell in a different way. It's, it's, it's crazy about life, right? Yeah. One, I, I didn't get on the plane. I did get on the plane. I, I was going to go to work. I didn't go to work. Right, and, yeah, I mean, right. It's, it's just... It's, I mean, how many stories do you have of, uh, of yeah. uh, 9-11? Right. And every single day, mm-hmm. I, I, I just, you know, I... Just different stuff. Like I can remember being a kid, and we're we're messing around with BB guns. Guy, sh- you know, shoots a BB gun at me. It, it ricochets off the tree. I mean, it's it was like this close to my eye. Like mm-hmm. could have been blind in one eye. Right. Then what? We're you talking know? about right. Yeah. I I could be doing this interview now, and I could have been wheeled in here. That's how close it was. Yeah. You know. Um, but there's a reason. You know, and and so many people dwell on the why me? Why did this happen? Well, that's. If you want to be a card-carrying member of the human race, something's going to happen, you know. And I firmly believe that there are two types of people in the world, those who have been hurt and those who have been hurt worse, you know. It's like, let's get past the drama here. Yeah. And you have there has to be a, a, a so-called precipitous event. If you want to get up stronger, more resolve, more focus, guess what has to happen? you got to get knocked down. Yeah. So we've all been lied to, cheated on, downsized, fired, whatever it might be, or God help us, shot. So it's not the uh, severity of the incident or the trauma itself, but our reaction to it that tests what we're made out of. So you obviously would not choose to have had that experience, but you are correct, sir. In, <laughs> <laughs> but but overall, the way it has impacted you. I feel like it, it maybe got you to a whole deeper level of... There's no question. Right? It's why, and, you know, some people will, will kind of scoff at it, you know, if they're sarcastic. But And I have a good strain of sarcasm within me as well. But it's not why did it happen, but why did I get better? And I firmly believe that it may very well be that I got better because somebody right now is listening to this who's going to be touched by this story. One person. Fingers crossed. I hope so. Yeah. I've been touched today, Wayne. I, so I, I really appreciate you sharing. So so thank you for, for, for coming by here. And 25 years. Amen, brother. We'll be back here for the 50th, <laughs> damn it. Oh, and you may be wheeling me in. I don't know. <laughs> what do you, uh, before we go, just let's, get, let's do three sports uh, thoughts off the top of my head. Favorite Cub of all time. Go ahead. Favorite Cub, Ron Sato. Oh, that's such a good answer. Favorite Blackhawk? Favorite Blackhawk would be, I really liked Al Secord. <laughs> and, all right, and let's give me a prediction here. Do do the, at time of taping right now, three and seven Chicago Cubs, do they turn it around this year? Are you an optimist? And, uh, and, and make it to the playoffs where it would be the fifth straight year? I'd say well, uh, you can tell there's a, there's a, healthy I'm, skepticism I'm right on the threshold here. But I want to say I want to say yes. You know, I have to believe that it will happen because we've seen it, that it could and it did. So I'm going to say yes, darn it. And, and your favorite, we'll end on this, your favorite thing about Wrigley Field. Oh, my God. 
I will just say my favorite thing about Wrigley Field is just that it's there. Thank you to the uh, – not that it would have – it would have been a bad business decision, so I don't want to give too much credit. But thank you to the Ricketts family for realizing that. No uh, kidding. I mean, you're not going out to the suburbs. You're going to rehab Wrigley Field. There is only one Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at, I you know, I mentioned the stadium a bunch of times. Like, I look at what they did with Madison Square Garden. That place is renovated. They're never building a new one because it's Madison Square Garden. Yeah, period. And. I wish they had, had done the same with the stadium. I get it. Business is business. But, and, and, yeah. you know, it's the way it is. But Wrigley, what they've done is so kind, so loving. Uh, you stand out there in that little park next door, and you're looking around when that first happened a couple of years ago. I said, man, I wish we had this at Wrigley. Wait a minute. We are at Wrigley. That iron work itself on the exterior is fabulous. Yeah. 2021 Cubs-White Sox World Series. I'm feeling it. Ooh, ooh, boy. Could we live through it? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know either, but I'd love to see it. It would be amazing. Wayne, great to great to talk to you. WayneMesmer.com, 25 years. Anything else you want to get out here? Just, uh, you know, over the years and even in the past several, well, few days at least, uh, it's been really a, a flood of emails, texts, uh, whatever it might be, Facebook and Twitter and all of that. I just say thank you. Um, believe me, if, if if you like the Wayne guy, uh, rest assured that uh, he likes you back. Great to be with you, Wayne. Thank you. Thanks a ton to Wayne Mesmer for sharing. As we move on, we bring in Dale Earnhardt Jr. Shockingly, I've been to the Indianapolis 500. I've even spun around the track in a test car, which was an awesome experience. Junior, as you'll learn, had never been to the 500 until this year. He's the Pied Piper of Daytona, Dale Earnhardt Jr. with us here. And uh, you're going to be joint, you're driving the pace car at the Indy 500, Junior. I, I, I hear this is making you nervous. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. I've never been to the Indy 500, so I'm sort of um, anxious to see that for the first time. It's one of the most important sporting events that happens in this world every year. And, yeah, I've always kind of held it, at, you know, this, on this pedestal. And so to be able to go there for the first time and, and watch that race would be one thing but now they have asked me to uh, drive the pace car and um how do you turn that down right uh but at the same time it's it's incredibly uh, drives me it drives the anxiety meter way up and i think that's easy to do for me i always sort of have always been a very nervous guy i i you know i'm i'm gonna go out there and look in the mirror and see all these Indy cars behind me, knowing that those guys are getting ready to start this incredible journey, and and one of them is going to become an Indy 500 champion that day. It's just going to have, there's going to be so much emotion, you know, down on the grid and and in that pace car as we start to take those guys off pit road. It's just going to, I can't even guess what that's going to feel like. So I'm really looking forward to it, but I am nervous. I just get nervous in general. That's just who I am. Yeah, how do you think that uh, the anxiety, you've talked about this openly many times. I'm curious, how do you think it actually helped you get to the level that you got to one of the greatest racers of all time? 
I know. I, I hated it. I hated being shy and nervous and 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 an introvert because I was in this world where I was always around people, around big crowds, and doing this incredibly nerve wracking job. But it it kept me in motion and it kept me moving and it kept me busy and it and it felt like that I was supposed to be doing it and supposed to be part of it and born into it, you know. So I just kept going. There was a lot of moving parts and, and a lot of other things depending on me uh, to, to do what I did and uh, sponsors and partners and mechanics and, 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 and individuals and my family and so forth that, that really depended on my uh, racing career. And so once that sort of all gets going in motion, it's hard to slow that train down. It's hard to bring it to a stop. I mean, coming to terms with my retirement was probably more difficult for my family and fans and everybody else than it ever was for me. Uh, that was a real easy decision for me. I was ready uh, to be done and uh, to get off that ride, you know, because it, it had been a lot of ups and downs. The ups are really great and the downs are really, really low. So to finally kind of get off that train, I'd been on it a long time. I was ready. So was it more than just the concussions you were dealing with? You actually were kind of burnt out. Am I hearing that right? I, I don't think burnt out would be the right word. And if I had not been injured, I would still be racing today. Okay. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it um, that I would still be competing if, if those injuries had not slowed me down. The injuries changed my perspective. It changed my priorities and values uh, 180 degrees. You know, I, I, when I was hurt, I was so scared that I was going to be stuck with those symptoms for the rest of my life. And that made me want to get as far away from racing as possible. And because I had so many other things I wanted to do and I didn't want to be broken or compromised to uh, experience all these things the rest of my life. Do you miss it? Uh, sure. Yeah. I think I'm, it's a healthy sort of miss yeah. uh, that helps me in the broadcast booth. I think to be up in the broadcast booth and miss it somewhat does drive my energy and my excitement for what I'm seeing. It keeps me engaged, and uh, I'm going to watch the races anyways. I'm a fan and a student of the sport, and I think that uh, that really all helps me up there in the booth. How did you get yourself comfortable to do all this media stuff that you're doing? Yeah, you know, you just do it long enough and do it over and over. I used to be terrified of coming to New York City for media. I used to be terrified of going on Good Morning America or any show like that or a late-night show like Fallon or Jay Leno. I used to be so scared to do anything like that and I always would if I could turn it down I would avoid it not do it run any other direction but eventually you do it enough and push yourself to be in those situations and be in those scenarios and realize that most people are going to take care of you most people are going to want to have a great time most people aren't going to take it in a wrong direction or a bad direction and you, you build up a lot of trust and and uh, you know, and it becomes enjoyable and it becomes fun. And so I, I certainly, when I sat down with the NBC folks to talk about going to work for them, I had to have that friend and family feel mm -hmm. uh, from them, that trust. And I got it. You are racing coming up here in August, the Xfinity Series Sports Club, the VFW 200 at Darlington. Do you get nervous getting back in the car? I love being able to anticipate this one race all year long. I love being able to look forward to it. I love being out there and competing. But once it's over, it's sort of like I'll, I'm reminded why I love it, but I'm also reminded why I don't do it anymore. I kind of get to scratch that itch, and it's enough. It's enough for me. We'll see how long I sort of drag that out and do that one race a year. But 
there's not even a contract on the table right now to do any more beyond this race in Darlington. So I don't know if this is the last race, but you never say never. If somebody comes up with a deal that, that looks like a lot of fun and we want to go run somewhere like Darlington that's fun, uh, maybe we'll fire it up and do it next year again. Yeah, and you finished fourth last year, so you know that you're good enough to do it still. Yeah, that was a great feeling to go out there and lead and be competitive and have a shot at winning that race. That made me feel amazing. I know that everybody that tuned in to see see me run it wanted that, you know, wanted me to be competitive, you know, wanted it to be entertaining. So I felt like I checked a lot of boxes there that, that made me feel really amazing. I don't know how, you know, if we'll have that kind of success in this race at Darlington. That's not necessarily the real goal for me. It'll be an awesome bonus if we do. But I just want to go out there, smell the smells and, and, and feel the adrenaline rush that you get from driving with a smile on my face and, and have, you know, realized that, man, this is a real privilege to be able to do it. If people haven't read your book, Racing to the Finish, My Story, what, what would you say that they would learn about you? Well, if you're a race fan, I think that it'll help you understand a lot of the reasons why I decided to quit. Uh, if you're someone who's either going through a concussion or you know somebody who is, or you're an athlete playing a contact sport and you're at risk, I think that it'll help you with a lot of knowledge about how to make the right decision, how to make the wrong decision. It'll point you in a lot of directions that'll help you if you ever find yourself in that similar situation where you're you're stuck with an injury and you don't know what to do. You don't know who to talk to or where to go. And so, and it also, you know, if you're struggling with those symptoms, it'll give you that hope and that um, the belief that this can get fixed and just through hard work and through rehab that you can improve and and uh, have a better quality of life. Do you think the knowledge on the track has changed? I mean, you got a ton of good friends in the game. I mean, what, do you think that's still the same thing that you were feeling like, hey, this is normal, uh, it'll go away, and I'll, I'm going to be out there racing next week? Do you think that mindset is, is diminishing some? What would you say? I hope that the culture is always changing. It has to. I made the decisions that I made based on the knowledge that I'm getting from the world. And we read and hear about concussions and learn something new about them every day. And that stuff is published and people are educated. Drivers read, drivers read articles. Drivers are curious. There's cer certainly if you find yourself with an injury, you're going to jump online and you're going to try to dig and learn and try to figure out what's happening to you before you probably ever reach out to a doctor. In this world of being able to have that information at your fingertips, uh, you have to assume that drivers are becoming more and more educated by the minute. Yeah. And NASCAR's made a lot of changes for our sport as well to protect the drivers from themselves. We have a neurosurgeon that's at every race. That used to not be the case just a couple of years ago. If a driver's involved in any kind of accident that takes them out of the race, they have to be put in front of this neurosurgeon to be cleared, even if it's a minimal accident with no contact. So NASCAR has changed a lot of things to help the drivers, protect them from themselves, and drivers are also getting smarter, either through my story or stories like mine or stories from other sports. You know, they're reading about athletes from other sports that are going through these issues and what's happening with them. Everybody's sort of getting educated, uh, and we're living in a time where the, the information's coming fast and furious and on the concussion side. Hey, lastly, before you go, what are you, what are you doing with Nick Arrett? I know you've been in the battle here. That's right, man. I, um, I was a smoker for 15 years, 
and not a lot of people know that, obviously, but I kind of tried to keep that hidden. Being an athlete, being a race car driver wasn't something that I wanted everybody to know about. I thought I would never really share that story. I've been smoke-free for over six, seven years now. Nicorette contacted me about two months ago said, we got a new product that's coated ice mint lozenge that we want to try to tell people about. We think you'd be a great spokesman for it. We think you'd be a great guy to help us spread the word. And if you're willing to tell your story, uh, which I had to think about that, uh, they were like, hey, we think it would be a, it'd be a good fit. And I looked at it as the same thing with the book and the concussions and all that. How many people that we've been able to help through the, 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 the telling of that story, I felt like, man, if I come clean and, and tell people about my struggles and try to share with them this new product that I know if it were around when I was trying to quit, it would have made my journey much shorter. Uh, I think if I can help somebody quit, that'll be great. I know how happy it's made me in my life. I know how happy it's made my wife and my family and friends. And I want to have someone enjoy that same happiness and be free of that sort of addiction because it, it, it becomes this thing that controls you. And it's, it's the, you know, it, it, it restricts the decisions you make in your life and what you do and where you go. And so I want to be able to help someone, you know, sort of break that cycle. And I think with this new Nicorette coated ice mint lozenge, it's, it's, it's going to give them that advantage to do it. Junior, great to talk to you. Enjoy the 500. I think it's crazy that you've never been there before in your life, but uh, that's amazing. So have a great time. I know. <laughs> that's right. I mean, come on. I was always, well, I was always racing, and and so it was hard to get to that race and see it. If you could, you, we could have probably went and saw the beginning of it, but we'd have never been able to stay for the whole thing to get back to the Charlotte to run the 600. So. Yeah. I never had a chance to get there and see it, and, and I'm thrilled to be able to have that chance now. Yeah, it's an unbelievable event. Uh, great talk to you, Dale. Appreciate it. All right, man. Thank you. Fun conversation with Dale Earnhardt Jr. I wish I had more time with our next guest, Griffin House, who's a singer-songwriter. Check out his work, griffinhousemusic.com. Endless amount of songs that I have enjoyed over, say, 10 years now. Just endless stuff. And he's going to sing a one of his new songs for you today, Rising Star. And then a little conversation with Griffin House, who you should go see. He's awesome. Griffin House, right now on On The Mark. Griffin House, who is a singer, songwriter, huge baseball fan, He's been able to sing some national anthems at different ballparks around the country. He just put out his 13th album. It's called Rising Star and was in Chicago. I wanted to talk to him about his journey because here's a guy who rose up from being in Cincinnati, not necessarily knowing what he's wanting to do with his life, which I can relate to. And he was working at Pizza Hut and... uh, from there, he's been playing music ever since and making a living. How would you say your passion is for doing it now versus when you were 22? Um, it's it's changed a little bit, for sure. I, I never knew that I was such a responsible human being in terms of just, like, getting everything together. And, uh, you know, when I started in, in my early 20s, it was just, like, all about... Um, music only with no thought of like really anything else I just kind of wanted to pour my heart and soul out into the songs and make an amazing record but as I got older and went along in the music world I realized there's a lot more to it 
than that. And in, in order to kind of keep the ship afloat, you have to be responsible in a lot of different areas. So and especially now I, I have two kids, two daughters, Emma and Clara, they're seven and five and married. So I'm you know a musician and run kind of my own little traveling business and go around and play for people. And so it's there's a lot going on, but... Yeah, I was reading about how, like your your vision of what you want it to be now was different from back then. It's a common question, which is like, <clears throat> why aren't you bigger? Why aren't you playing stadiums? It seems like you could be, and I I appreciate that those comments too. And it's also, you know, some a part of me would be. It's sort of what the music, what the movie is about. Actually, we, okay. we address these questions in the movie. Okay, and um, like he asked me in the movie if I if I want to be a big star, and the, <laughs> the name of this the name of the movie is Rising Star. So we talk about how um, sometimes those expectations are put on musicians, like they were myself in the beginning of my career, and and how you think it's going to go one way, and certain things. Uh, alter your destiny a bit so it seems to me when you're up there that you're having a ton of fun is that, i am yeah, yeah. i am I, I love it up there and even though i'm like still nervous every night before i go on stage and there's resistance to it it's like like there's this resistance in life to do not do the all the things that we're supposed to do like this invisible force that tries to keep us from actually doing the things that are good for us or we're meant to and and somehow our job is to um see through that or push through that in a way that's uh, true to ourselves. I used to look at fear like, this is terrible. Oh, my God, I'm afraid. And now I'm, like, trying to flip for myself at least that, oh, that's exactly where I should be heading. Yes. And that's the, it's the ultimate guider, and you almost have to, like, become friends with it. Yeah, that could be the sign to tell you that this is exactly what you're supposed to be doing, right? Like, if you're afraid of it, you should probably do it. <laughs> right. And so, I mean, you have to live that every day as far as yeah. going up there. Pretty much. Well, on that note, let's put you on stage right now. Driving through town in his pickup truck, sipping on a beer with his sleeves rolled up. He's a rising star. Comes from the hill where the cold wind blows, down in the hollow where the red fern grows. And he's gonna go far. rising star first came to town back in 95 now he's doing what he can to keep a dream alive he plays a mean guitar he got jerked around he got wined and dined but he never got a deal and he never got signed but he ain't done trying mm, he's a rising star Fishing with a fishing pole, swimming in a swimming hole, shooting up a 12-point, firing up a fat joint, rocking in a rocking chair, dancing at the county fair, beating up a city punk, drinking in a honky-tonk bar. Mmm, he's a rising star. Saw Keith Urban in a button-up place, tried to talk to him, got punched in the face. He turned the other cheek He's getting on in years But it ain't dark yet He's going as far as he can get And he's bound to go far Mmm, -hmm, 
needs a rising star Hanging out a blackbird, polishing a chrome turd Looking for a country song, man, it's been so long Staying on the hip scene, riding in a limousine Eating finger-licking grub down at the country club Everybody knows who you are mm, You're a rising star Driving through town in his pickup truck Sipping on a beer with his sleeves rolled up He's a rising star mm, He's a rising star Alright, so when I first heard Rising Star I, I I just get teared up on that one. I don't know what it... For me, it just spoke to everybody who's chasing a dream. Right. And there's so many obstacles. He just... That dude never gave up. That's how I heard it. I did the same thing the other night in Denver. I was playing it, and, you know, there's, like, the, the funny line about the guy trying to talk to famous country singer Keith Urban <laughs> getting punched in the <laughs> yeah. face in a bar by his bodyguard or whoever, and there's some funny lines, and we wrote it as a, as a comedy, but uh, it struck me the other night as that too and I, w- I welled up on stage singing it because uh, I guess I had the same idea and realized also it might have been a little bit more about my, me than I realized. What, what do you want people to know about the new record? I want people to know that um, it's a great record. Damn straight. Um, we put a lot of heart into it and it's a it's definitely a bit of a musical journey in the sense that it starts with this acoustic song from my kitchen called Rising Star, and then it takes you through a myriad of sounds that almost make you feel like you're switching from genre to genre. There's a bagpipe intro solo in one of the songs called Cup of Fulfillment and some alternate tunings and just all sorts of different um, sounds and emotions on this album from a sense of humor to drama, and I think people will really enjoy it. Give you a final four questions. Number, what's your favorite song for you to play that you play all the time that you never get tired of playing? Well, it's been this Rising Star song has been my favorite moment in the set because I just I like the combination of making people laugh and maybe moving them <laughs> to tears at the same time. Like you said, I think that's a a really good combo, and if we can do both in this life and we're feeling the full range spectrum of emotions, I think that can be. A really healthy thing for all of us so what about the from the old school from the old school probably i remember because i get to sing about my grandpa every night and hold his memory uh in my mind and and share his stories with the audience and keep his memory alive i should tell you that so my dad is 93 fought in world war ii mm-hmm. and i'm you know I'm, I'm trying to like cherish every moment that i have left with him sure and we were we were driving to the supermarket, and I'm like, I'm gonna play him. I remember. Nice. And uh, you know, he's kind of a brick of a guy. You know, you know that generation. Sure. So I'm, I was hoping that he was gonna hear it. Like, hey man, like 
this makes this song makes me think of you mm-hmm. um and he did okay but it, that but that was like none of that really mattered it was just like the moment for me to have right. that to play it so i thank you for that thank you mark <laughs> it was it was sweet is the house proud of where he's, where he's gotten to sometimes i am so, sometimes it's the feeling of like what you were asking me earlier of um oh is it disappointing to to people that um i didn't live up to those high expectations of that bar and then and then when i'm playing my shows i'm like this is beautiful you know this is this is it this is great so it runs the spectrum between the two yeah okay i i I must be i hate that i even like it's not you i know you're gonna get it from everywhere yeah but it's like it's a uh, i guess that's like sort of like my my own thing like i i feel like for myself if i bring it back to me i'm super proud of where I've gotten to mm-hmm. from somebody who was like, what the, f- am I going to do with mm-hmm. my life getting out of college? I just wanted yeah. to be in the locker room and like see Michael Jordan to now mm-hmm. like trying to be the guy. Um, so I'm proud of that. But, and then I also want like, why can't I be Stephen A or whoever, whatever person you want to fly up there? <clears throat> um, yeah. You if, know, you, so th- if you want to know the real answer, it's like the insecure part of my humanity is that I, I recognize that what I'm doing is, very at the center of who I am and it's very fulfilling and I, I I love it so much and at the same time there's a part of me we live in this age of social media that just can make you feel like you're constantly comparing yourself with other people and looking at these numbers to compare yourself with folks and um, it's like if I, I, I sometimes think to myself if I was doing the exact same thing that I'm doing and all those numbers like looked good on paper that I'd, I'd probably feel like yeah, that's enough. And I know it's so silly because when I say it out loud, it's so ridiculous. But um, but you want it, it being wanting validation is normal. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a shame that um, where we have to that it's really come to this creepy thing where like there's a number on a screen on an app, and we all like are so concerned with that and the fact that we run around trying to be pros at these little apps that are set up to be addictive in nature in the first place is insane and our society is insane today and i'm trying to like keep my sanity by playing my music and keep going but uh it's it's a little bit of a challenge (laughs) it is how do you stay sane in an insane world (laughs) it's it's in your face every day yeah uh and then what's next yeah well i'm super proud of you man i i it's a i've I don't know when I jumped on your journey, but I feel like it's now maybe ten years. And it, whenever you're coming into town, yeah. or I'm I'm looking at your tour, like should I go up to should I go up to Michigan to see him, <laughs> Is it, or should I go down to uh, wherever you play down in in uh, about ninety minutes south of here? Um, so it it brings me great joy to see you play. I know Thank you know you. that. So just I, you asking me if I'm proud of myself makes me feel like. Yeah, I guess if Mark's telling me I should be, well, that's you, a good sign. I probably should. Well, you bring joy to a lot of people, man. Thank I mean, you. you. You just do. Like, and I'm talking about, like, I, you know, I'll be sitting there, you know, feeling emotion in your show. You know, I got my fiance now. She's so excited to see the show tonight. We're bringing two people with. But we'll sit there and hold hands the whole time. Like, it's it, there's a real meaning in there. You, yeah. I, I, I'm sure you know that's going on, but, I, I like, I want you to. I mean, I'm not the only one out there. I know that's not the case. So, um, yeah. Thank you, know, you. That means a lot to me. Um, yeah, and the people at the city winery—if they're allowed tonight, I'm gonna—I'm gonna have—I'm gonna, gonna have a problem. Would you focus on the show and quit you, these people with their with their wine glasses and their and their and their and their <laughs> their duck? Come on, man. Yeah, it's not a dive. It's not a dive bar. It's a it's a high quality, high class place. So it's kind of like 
I, I can't really be the one on stage to tell people to shut the, you know what, up. So I, I have to leave it to the crowd to police. So you are invited to police as many people as you need to. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna live my policing dream tonight. They're usually pretty cool though. No, they're great. They're great. Yeah. I I just I got high standards. Griffin, great yeah. to see you. Thanks for having me in. My man, Griffin House, great to have him on the show. And let's wrap up today. When I was growing up, I would listen to Chet Kopic. Chet was always a personality. He would host the Doug Collins show when Doug Collins was the head coach of the Bulls. And I would call into a show to talk Bulls and to scream about how Michael Jordan's the greatest player in all of basketball. Enough with this Magic Johnson. Enough with this Larry Bird. Chet passed away recently. He was tragically involved in a car accident that took his life. I wanted to have a conversation about Chet. So Seth Marks and I, who we did radio way back in the day, but Seth and I both love Chet. So we wrap up today's show with a conversation about Chet, one of the great sports figures, certainly in Chicago history. Here's Seth and I, our conversation about Chet. Did you call Copic's show? Oh, yeah. It's the first show I ever called. Before the score, it was Copic on sports from the crack of the bat from the bounce of the ball, right? Kopik, uh was the first one to instill, as you said, off-air, that love for sports talk in this town in Chicago, which is in the fabric and fiber, when the pigeons outnumbered the fans, as Kopik would say at the old Chicago Stadium. You and I were in a dark room in the North Shore. Instead of doing our homework... We were listening to Copagon Sports, and I was calling, right? Hey, Chet, it's Bobby from Bolingbrook. You know, at like 13 years old. Did you go fake name back then, or were you Seth and HP? No, always. Never used the same name. Uh, uh, (laughs) Usually never the same name twice unless I made a bet. Like as Packer Paul or something like that. So you you actually ripped yourself off because you'd be like, let's go out to the streets of Rough and Tumble Highland Park over by Michael's Hot Dog on Central Avenue. Let's get our guy Seth back in here. He would he could have given you the long intro. Yeah, no, I never was able to establish a rapport because I never had the security in myself that any of these characters were any good. So I wanted them to evaporate after the conversation. But as you know. Back in 1980, when was the Phil Jackson? When did Doug Collins get fired? Collins got fired in 89. Yes, you were on. I, that's When I heard you on the show, you called in. Everybody was crushing the Bulls. And you called in and said, this is an incredible move. The Bulls are on the verge of a dynasty. I remember hearing that, and I believed you. That's amazing. That, that And so... I had a little bit of an inside backstage pass because uh, my best friend's grandfather was in Reinsdorf's investor group. Okay. And they had been talking about how Phil Jackson is this 2.0 coach, a modern thinking philosopher that knows how to relate from the first player to the 12th player and coaches the player, not the team. And then uh, the the sum of the parts becomes greater than the whole as a result of the way Phil Jackson coached. And I was hearing this as a 15, 16-year-old, and I was buying it because I hated every teacher, every coach I ever had because it was like my way or the highway. And then I was starting to think, okay, Phil Jackson's a little different. This is a, kind of a hippie guy. 
and I had gotten that inside info and called Copic to tell him, Chad, everybody has this wrong. This is the new be- this is the beginning of a dynasty. Phil Jackson's gonna be one of the greatest coaches. And he was like, My gosh, little Larry. Uh, <laughs> he didn't buy it if I remember. Yeah, you tell like, me why, little Larry. <laughs> that you think that Phil Jackson because he had done the show with Doug Collins, the Doug Collins show. Yeah. You tell me why Phil Jackson is gonna be better than and you and you you, I remember you articulated Pippen and Grant are going to be coming into their prime. Michael is Michael. Like you had, you you made a very solid point. It was compelling. I'm, yes, I'm impressed I, I, to this I, day. Who who can? Uh, yeah, it's amazing. Is who would have thought you and I, who were just friends, not even really at that point. No, you were uh, bullying me at Highland Park High School. To- <laughs> But here we are. Fast forward, uh, you know, not losing sight of that Chet Kopik, you know, indirectly instilled a love of sports radio and really guy talk overall. He kind of transcended. You didn't have to be a total geek like to like, you know, as much as I love Grobber and some of these sports radio people today, you kind of need to be a geek. You know, geek. Less I felt told, like, my, less, like, less. like my girlfriend or wife or whoever could listen at the same time. Yeah, no, less. I love less, but less is the king of the nerds. And so many sports guys, were, they're, they're nerds. I, I hope they don't take this the wrong way. George Hoffman is a nerd. Bruce Levine is a nerd. Mark Silverman. Probably a nerd. He would, he would, def- he would, he would uh, battle back. And Copic maybe was too, but he also, he was uh, roller derby. Than life. He, he, right. Yeah, yeah. We walk in that old stadium, as you were saying just a few minutes ago, with the fur coat and the briefcase. I mean, you had uh, Geraldo Rivera opening up Capone's vault. Is it too late to do a, a get Geraldo to open up Copic's briefcase? I would kill to see what the hell was in Chet Copic's briefcase. He walked around with that beautiful leather briefcase that had like the two locks of the gold plated on the side and his fur coat. And I was probably 12 years old the first time I saw that. And he was walking behind the scores table, and I was like 15 rows. He, Chet, Chet, we love you, Chet. You know, he'd look up like he was a rock. Star point at you, wink at you, and, ma- and and even and maintain a little more eye contact than a normal celebrity would. And at that point, you just fell in love with the guy. And then you see him at East Bank years later with a, I think it was a Prada briefcase. What's in the briefcase? He would just sit there and read the paper and have his his glasses, his Diet Coke. What are you doing over there, Chet? Do you want me to come say hello? Because I really want to say hello to you. I know that you saw him like on the street outside East Bank with your wife, and somehow he like told your wife that you were you were the you were the right guy to be. You're with a winner. What was that? Story? <laughs> I, 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 well, is you know, Mark, I'm in the uh, in the in the full time. I'm a liquidator. I buy and sell distressed assets. I focus on consumer products. A deal came across from Triumph. Publishing. Rich Mitch Rogatz, the CEO and chairman of Triumph Publishing, called me one day and said, Hey, I got 60,000 books called Fat Guys Shouldn't Be Dancing <laughs> by Chet Kopic. Uh, and I said, Well, how many did you make? He's like, 60,000. I'm like, You don't have all. So, no, actually, we got about 59,000. I think we sold 1,000. So he sends me a sample. I get enamored in the book, right? It's a Chet Kopic, just, you know, him as if he were on the radio, but in writing. And I bump into him a few weeks later at the East Bank Club. 
I say, Chad, Chad, I just read your book. It's incredible. I don't tell him I have 59000 to liquidate, <laughs> right? And he comes, oh, sit down. Come on. Uh, sit down with me, buddy. So I sit down with him at the table at East Bank, and I'm talking to him. It was like an out of body. I mean, I still feel like a kid, you know, even though I'm a 40-plus-year-old man with a wife who I've been expecting to leave me for years, and she's finishing her workout. She's like, I, I, I'm texting her. I'm with Chet Coppett. Come meet me. She's like, no, just meet me downstairs, right? So I'm like, Chet, uh, I got to go. He's like, I got to go too. You know, we walk down. We're walking outside. My wife is waiting outside, and he sees my wife. He says, let me tell you something, young lady. <laughs> 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 he said, Meredith, meet, meet Chad Comics. He, he says, let me tell you something. You're with a winner. <laughs> I'm indebted to life. I'm indebted. My wife is like, oh, my God, who is that guy? It's like, he was my idol growing up. And it, oh, my God, <laughs> who is that guy? <laughs> with his briefcase, his six-foot-six frame, the, the odd walk. God, I love him. Oh man, seventy years old, gone too soon. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, oh, I had a just. Uh, oh, but how I many want... times have you counted? You've had so many. So my my greatest comic moment. Um, you know, I'm at I'm at WGN and I'm working part time as I am now, and the White Sox move from the score to WLS eight ninety. What year is this? This is. Two years ago, three years ago. Okay. So, I ask um, the WGN people, "Hey, you know, I, I'd like to try out for this gig. They're they're having people do random shows. It was during the off season, and GN is as great as they've always been to me. Like, absolutely, go ahead, go try out. So I go over there. I do like four shows, White Sox weeklies, which I'm doing now at, at WGN. It's everything comes first full circle. White Sox are at uh, at seven twenty, but so they're at they were at eight ninety for two years before that thing fell apart. So I go and I try out. Chet is doing Notre Dame pre and post at eight ninety. I do my shows. I see Chet like maybe once. I'm intimidated. I don't say anything. I do my show. I get out of there. I'm walking out after another one of them. He walks up to me and he's like, "Let me tell you something. I told Pete Bolger, the program director, you're the guy." You're the guy. They had this. You're the hire, and I'm like, do you know? Like, n- that's incredible. Like the only, I've never been validated. Never been validated like that in my. I'm like, you're the Godfather sports reader. You just, you just, you, you've heard all these people doing it, and you think I'm the dude. Now they didn't hire me, but Chet had. That's all that matters. You were hired when Chet said you're the guy. You, the, in your in your life, you were hired. It's much bigger than what that station didn't do. Is the fact that Copic validated you. That was. I mean, that's huge, right? I was like, Chet, thanks, man. I really, really, really appreciate. It. I hope I get didn't get it, but Chet. Like like that felt like okay I've That's done so, I'm, I've done something right here. Yeah, Copic enjoys it's it. It's like Michael Jordan seeing you play pickup while you're trying out for a team, and he tells you you should make the team. Right? Who cares if you made it or not? Like right. The fact that we grew up idolizing the guy, and here we are. Uh, um, Ever tell you about the drive down the lane at the multiplex where I hung in the air and, and missed the layup? Jordan was walking in, and I I turned and looked at he he was like he saw the move, and then he he gave me the he gave me the ooh. <laughs> Greatest moment of my hoop career. Never made a team. Got cut in junior high. Got cut in high school. Couldn't. Got cut from three on three teams. But Jordan gave me the ooh. I got an ooh. So all right, it was an era, man. I uh, we love Chet. Let's see. 
You get, you're getting a text right now from Lou Canellis that you're showing me. My hero. Fucking love Lou Canellis. Fucking love Lou. Lou. He's Lou. taking the torch. He's taking the torch. Like, you know, who's the Chicago guy? As You and I talk about this all the time growing up here. You always feel like so many, we get infiltrated by these sports broadcasters from around the country. And who really, really feels the way we feel as Chicago sports diehards? There's so few. You felt like Kopik was one of those guys. And Lou Canellis, not to digress too much, to me is the guy today that you feel like is looking at the game and feeling the game the same way we do. And Coppock was one of those guys, and Lou Canellis is absolutely one of those guys. Lou gave, Lou gave Chet a great tribute on Twitter as well. So did Mark, uh, Mark Greco, David Kaplan, Dan McNeil. Uh, the tree is the tree is very very long. He's like uh, his coaching tree is better than Shashevsky. His coaching tree is better than Andy Reid. His coaching tree we could go on and on. Pop the Miami whole... Ohio college football coaches. I mean, sure, why not? Absolutely. All right, thank you for checking out the broadcast. Thanks to Wayne Mesmer for jumping on. Seth, appreciate you. Chad Kopic, you will be missed. It's too bad that you couldn't be around for uh, what was your funeral because you have gotten so much love, and I know how much you would have enjoyed the attention which is why I want to have my funeral before I go. I want everybody to, who's ever going to say anything nice, I want to be around for it. Don't you want to be around for your funeral? That's a topic for another show. What? You want, I, want every, I want all the nice things. You wouldn't want to hear the brilliance that I'll say at your funeral. Seth Marks inspired me to live my best life. Seth Marks transformed like nobody in the history of the planet. Seth Marks, I knew him in high school. I knew him in junior high. Uh, I want to say what you said off air about Copic is all I want. Is to me a successful life in the end, which is what Kopic lived, despite the choppiness in the end for him. What you said about him, the thing about Chet Kopic, he was always him. He was always him. He wasn't a two-faced, you know, you thought it was a shtick, but that was freaking Kopic. And, and I just want to be the guy, that consistent guy, like me, hate me, whatever, but it's me. Right? That's all you can ask. He was always him. And I, he, he was, and I say that mainly in public. Like, I wonder behind the scenes what, what Chet was, you know, I, I, it wasn't pretty for a long time for him. Uh, you know, a lot of demons, man, wanted to be on that stage. But so in, are you saying he wasn't always him? No, I'm not saying that. But whenever you, whenever you saw him, he was him. But he was also him inside. There, I, I would have maybe, I would, it, it, it's not, it wasn't. No indictments. Yeah, and it wasn't my business, wasn't anyone's business, but I would have enjoyed, you know, if he had, you know, really sort of come clean about everything that he was feeling in there, it would have been, it would have been a very interesting, maybe you wouldn't have had 59,000 books to liquidate. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been compelling. Maybe there's a sex Did, video in that briefcase. My gosh. <laughs> As we wrap up the show here, a ton of thank yous today. Wayne Mesmer, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Seth Marks at Griffin House. Thank you to you, Ashley Young. And a reminder, please subscribe to On The Mark, which comes out every Monday afternoon. We appreciate it. Subscribe, give a rating, and we will see you next week. When you
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.